like the hot, humid weather. Oof, sorry to hear that. Um, let's go ahead and stand. <laughs> uh, also want to welcome those of you tuning in online this morning. It's great to have you with us. And uh, hope you feel uh, just as connected to our gathering here this morning as those of us sitting in this room. And just a reminder, we're going to take communion this morning. And so if you're at home, make sure you grab those elements and take communion. And if you're here and you forgot to grab them at the uh, sanctuary doors, right outside the sanctuary doors, make sure you grab those. Uh, and we'll, we'll take communion a little bit later on after the message. So you guys ready to sing? All right.
bow your head and pray with me. Lord, your word says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we praise you and thank you that you predestined us, that you adopted us. And this morning, for those of us in here who are in Christ, we stand before you now. And you call us sons and daughters. Such an amazing thing, Lord. Lord, we used to stand before you as guilty, shameful sinners. And Lord, as that song just said, there was no righteousness of our own that we had. There was no thing that we could have done on our own to atone for our sins. Jesus, you came as the great high priest. You came as the spotless sacrificial lamb. And through your perfect sacrifice, Jesus, through your blood, we stand before the Father justified, covered in your righteousness. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray right now if there's anything that we think that we can do to earn your favor, to cause you to love us more. Lord, one, I, I pray that you would show us that you already love us fully. And two, I pray that you would show us our any self-righteousness that we think we have, any good works that we think we commit, pale in comparison to the work of Christ on the cross. Lord, help us to surrender those things to you right now. Why don't you take a moment, if there's something like that in your life where you think, man, I am white knuckling this sin right now because every time I give into it, I think God is angry at me and disapproving of me. And every time I beat the sin, I, I believe that God loves me more because of that. Take a moment and confess that thing to God and pray that he would free you from this legalistic living. Pray that he would show you what it looks like to rest in his grace and to rest in the truth that he already loves you. That he rejoices in you. That he delights in you.
Let's just take a moment to do that.
Um, kids, you can be dismissed to your classrooms, and everyone else, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Chris is going to be up for announcements. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome again. Great to have all of you here. I'm Chris, one of the pastors here, and would like to welcome you to Limworth. And a welcome to all of you that are watching online as well, watching home or wherever you're watching. We're glad that uh, you're here this morning and we can connect to God and connect to one another in a uh, very meaningful way and experience heaven on earth this morning. Um, hey, if you're new this morning, and um, uh, would like to get more information or learn a little bit more about Linworth. Uh, there is a Connect card in front of you, or there's a Connect card uh, online on the Bible app, and you can fill that out. If you're here, you can drop that off at our uh, Welcome Center after the service. We also have a bag we'd like to give you with some things about Linworth and some gifts from Linworth that uh, you can learn a little bit more, and also, again, just a way to bless you. So. Be sure to drop by our welcome center uh, on your way out so we can give that to you. Okay, by way of announcement, three things this morning to make sure that you are um, uh, aware of. Uh, next Sunday, we'll continue our Revelation series in chapters four and five. We'll finish the seven letters this week, but we will continue next week in chapters four and five in our Revelation series. And then Sunday the 31st, we uh, do this on a quarterly basis every a month where there are five weeks, we have a celebration service. And uh, so I know that we've already have some uh, baptisms planned and some dedications, uh, baby dedications planned, and also some really compelling stories that are happening right now in, the, uh, uh, in our congregation, in our body. And our theme for this coming celebration service is what's called a Kairos moment which means where is God working right now? What is God doing? Where is he working? And we have some individuals that I think are really participating in where God is working both locally and around the world. And uh, we're gonna hear a little bit of their stories um, on that Sunday morning, the 31st, as we celebrate uh, all that God is doing here um, in our midst. Secondly, uh, we have a partner organization named Orphan World Relief. And uh, OWR serves orphans, refugee, foster, and at-risk children, both here and around the world. And uh, Doug Riggle's a member here. Doug is the founder and president of OWR. And they have a few job openings. So Doug wants us to make you aware of that. And again, if you look uh, uh, online or look at our e-letter, you'll see where to go to get more information about those job openings. And then finally, next Saturday, be a great weekend. Next weekend, we have our vision night and our harvest party. On Saturday morning, uh, we are having an Hispanic ministry breakfast. And if you've not been aware, God's been doing some really neat things uh, in uh, helping us develop an Hispanic ministry. We're so excited to have some new friends that are launching forth and have become a part of our body and are reaching uh, into the Hispanic community, inviting and welcoming their friends. And they have done, actually this will be the third one they've done. Uh, it's a, uh, a breakfast 
they're going to watch a movie, inspiring movie. They're going to receive some of God's word. Uh, there's going to be prayer for uh, their family members. Again, they're inviting a lot of their friends in the Hispanic community and wanting to invite the entire church as well. That service will be translated into English. And uh, so it'll be simultaneously translated into English. And they wanted to make sure that you felt welcome in coming and child care is provided. And again, if you want more information, uh, you can call the church or again on the e-letter and on the, on the Bible app, there's a, 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 a place to call to make reservations. Would like you to make reservations if you're coming so we can plan on you uh, or a phone call in order to get more information. Okay, uh, Pastor Nick uh, is going to take us into our next church letter. So, Nick. All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. Um, today, we are going to continue on in our series entitled Jesus in Revelation. And this morning, we're going to look at the last of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in this book. And this last one is perhaps the most well-known or infamous among the seven, and that is the church of Laodicea. Now, I don't know how many of you were into the show American Idol, uh, but it, it came out my senior year of high school all the way back in 2002. And at the time, there was so much buzz around the show. It was uh, by far one of the most popular shows on TV in the early 2000s. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think they are even still putting out new seasons, uh, which is crazy because that's almost 20 years ago now. Um, although there's no way that it's as popular as it was when it first came out. Um, I, like a lot of people, personally stopped watching many years ago, but when I remember back to those first couple of seasons, they, they really were pretty good. There were some good moments, um, some good uh, musicians came out of that. Um, and one of the things that I think was interesting and even unique about the show is that it showed you not only the good auditions and those who could sing really well, but it also showed you the bad ones, like the really bad auditions. In fact, for many people, that was their favorite part of the show. Now, I was going to show you a clip of a really bad audition that I thought was hilarious, um, but then I showed it to my kids this week, and I, and we, I put it on, and I'm like, isn't that funny? And they're like, no, Dad, that's not funny. That's really mean. And uh, it was at that moment that I realized I'm a terrible human being and uh, that I thought that was funny. So anyway, let me just describe what happened in the clip, but basically what happens is this poor kid, he's like 20 years old, and it's from season one, so I think it's before like people probably started faking it or trying to get famous for being bad. I think he genuinely thought he was good, and so he gets up, and he's dancing weird, and he's singing, and uh, it's as bad as it can be, and, and the three judges, you know, Randy, Simon, and Paula, they're just like covering their faces because they're laughing, and so the kid kind of realizes this isn't going so well, and so he stops, and he says, do you want to hear the chorus? And Simon Cowell's like, no, I can't hear anymore. And then Simon looks at him and he says, best singer in America? And the kid's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And Simon said, I can honestly say you are the worst singer in America. Now, obviously that's harsh. And if you've watched the show, you know that Simon Cowell can be a jerk. That's kind of his thing. Um, but one thing that he did and one thing that the show did is that it served as a kind of reality check for people. I mean, you had all of these people across America, and somehow they had made it through life up until this point without a friend or a family member pulling them aside and giving them the honest truth, 
right? Like grandma never pulled him aside at Christmas and was like, honey, I love you, but you stink at singing. Please stop singing at, at the family gatherings, you know? Like that just didn't happen. And so instead they came onto national television and they got a harsh dose of reality. And look, sometimes facing reality is really hard. In fact, I had my own American Idol moment when I was a kid. Um, now, it wasn't nearly as traumatic or embarrassing as being on national television, um, but I too, when I was younger, used to think that I could sing good. In fact, growing up, me and one of my closest friends, we went to church together, and we would occasionally get asked to sing in front of our church at like a Sunday night service or a special youth service or something like that. Um, but what happened is, is at some point, um, they stopped asking both of us. Instead, they'd be like, we'd be standing there and they would look at him and be like, would you like to sing on Sunday night, you know? And, and so I slowly started to realize and understand, oh wait, people must think I, I stink at singing. And in fact, the truth is I do stink at singing. I'm what's known as tone deaf, which just basically means like you can't do it. Um, now I'm not gonna prove it to you, you can just take my word for it. Now here's the thing, Dallas Willard, the, the late philosophy professor, talked about the relationship between truth and reality, and he said this, he said, truth describes reality, and reality is what you run into when you are wrong. And what we're gonna see today as we begin to look at this letter to the church in Laodicea is that they were in desperate need of a reality check. What I mean is that this, this church, they thought about themselves in one particular way, but as we will see, Jesus actually shows them that the opposite of what they think about themselves is true. In other words, Jesus gives them a reality check. Like Simon Cowell, Jesus is going to deliver a harsh dose of reality to the Laodicean church, but very much unlike Simon Cowell, he's gonna do so out of a place of love and concern for them. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 22. Um, if you want to follow along in a pew Bible, that's on page. I'm just going to just, I'm going to keep calling them pew Bibles because I don't know what else to call them. So I know we don't have pews anymore, but if you want to follow along in the pew Bible, it's page 1030. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. <coughs> And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are we're so thankful that we have this opportunity to come together as the gathered church. And Father, we invite your presence here this morning. 
Father, I pray that even as it says there, that we would be ones who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And so, Lord, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you instruct our hearts? Would you help us to move and grow and change into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. So our outline to walk us through the passage today will be number one, the rebuke, number two, the recommendation, and then finally we'll look at the reward. And so starting with the first one here, the rebuke, let's look again at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, what we see here in this first verse is what we have seen at the beginning of each of the letters to the seven churches. And that is Jesus begins by addressing an angel who is over that particular church. And then he shares with them and he describes to them and to the church an aspect of his character and his nature. Um, It's almost like Jesus is giving his credentials before launching into the letter. And in doing so, he is establishing his authority to rebuke or to praise them for what they have done. And this time, in this letter, what we see is that Jesus refers to himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. Now, in calling himself the amen and the true witness, what Jesus is doing here is he is assuring the Laodiceans that what he says is true that it is reality and that it can be depended upon. But not only that, he says he's also the beginning of God's creation. Now, some have looked at a verse, this verse or a verse like this, and they've saying, see, look, look, the Bible says here, right there, that that Jesus had a beginning. In other words, he was uh, created. He is not eternal or divine. But actually, the, the, the phrase, the beginning, is itself a divine title. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that he is the source of creation, not an aspect of creation. In fact, one Bible scholar pointed out that actually this passage here emphasizes Jesus' deity rather than the opposite of that. And if you were here a few months ago when I taught through the second half of Revelation chapter 1, where we got this amazing picture of the glorified risen Jesus, uh, in that uh, message I argued that there is no doubt that the book of Revelation argues very strongly for Jesus' deity and for his oneness with Yahweh. And so these are the credentials, these are the aspects of his character and his nature that he shares with the Laodicean church. But then in verse 15, he very quickly moves into rebuking them. Again, he says this, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is obviously a very famous part of the letter. But it's also one that I think and and many others have said is, is very commonly misunderstood. You see, some people have looked at this verse and they have interpreted Jesus as saying, look, you guys, I I wish that you were either hot for me and, and, and passionate and on fire for me, or if you're not going to do that, I wish that you would at least be cold and indifferent and, and basically I wish you were a non-Christian. But since you are neither, since you are somewhere in between a passionate Christ follower and a cold unbeliever, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. 
Now, if we just step back for a moment and we think about that theologically and think about that interpretation biblically, I think we would begin to realize that most likely that's not true. What I mean is that if we just think about for a moment who Jesus is and what the Bible has to say, we would recognize and we would acknowledge that Jesus would never tell someone, I wish you were a cold, dead, non-Christian, right? Like Jesus just would not say that. In fact, uh, in, in 1 Timothy 2 tells us the opposite of that. It says there that God's desire is for everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so again, I just would argue that I, I don't think that can be a correct interpretation of the passage. And so what is a correct interpretation? Well, I would argue here that, that us understanding some of the historical details and the context of the situation and specifically the historical details around the city of Laodicea make a really big difference in helping us understand the passage. You see, historians and commentators tell us that the city of Laodicea was a very wealthy, well-to-do city. In fact, during Roman times, it became one of the wealthiest cities in its region. Um, part of that was because it was uh, along a very important trade route in Asia Minor. And so there was a lot of just trade going through there, which led to them becoming wealthy. Um, not only that, the, the city was known for being a major banking center, uh, center in Asia Minor. Um, it was known for manufacturing black wool, which was used for clothing and carpets and rugs and things like that. Um, one ancient writer said about them that the Laodiceans were the best dressed people of the Roman province of Asia. Um, as well, they had this uh, flourishing medical school and, and it was especially famous for this eye salve that they had created, which was used to treat various eye conditions, including blindness. Um, another thing to note about the Laodiceans is that they were also uh, extremely proud and, and self-sufficient as a culture. In fact, twice during their history, the city was completely leveled and destroyed by an earthquake. And both times, Rome offered them government support or financial aid, almost like a FEMA type thing. And both times they refused and instead rebuilt the city on their own. And they did so out of their own resources. And so all in all, Laodicea was a pretty great place to live in terms of wealth and comfort and luxury. However, though, there was one major problem for the city, and that was its water source. You see, apparently they didn't have a good water source, and so instead they had to build an elaborate aqueduct system and have the water piped in from its surrounding neighbors. And apparently the two towns where they would have got water from and had it piped in were uh, Colossae, which was about 10 miles to the east of them, and then the other one was a place called Hierapolis, which was about six miles north. Now Colossae apparently was known and was famous for having extremely cold and refreshing water. And the reason for that is because its water source was a runoff off of a, a nearby mountain. And so it was this ice cold mountain water. Now in contrast to that, Hierapolis was known for having these amazing hot springs. And people would literally travel to there to enjoy these hot springs because they believed there were medicinal purposes behind them. And so here you have Laodicea, its two closest neighboring cities are known for their great water sources, one which is very cold and the other which is very hot. And yet because Laodicea had to have their water piped into it, by the time it, it reached them, by the time it traveled the, the miles through the pipes, the water was always tepid and lukewarm. 
And I'm sure that, you know, in the history of the world, there's some people out there that are the exception to the rule. But in general, most people find lukewarm water to be disgusting. And really, when you think about it, it's not just water, right? Like, I mean, personally, I think there's probably nothing more disgusting than lukewarm coffee. I mean, Starbucks is coming out with new drinks all of the time and they get creative, but they have yet to start producing lukewarm coffee as their big next seller, you know? And that's because it's gross. And actually, this reminds me of a terrible experience I had in Poland many, many years ago uh, when I was there on a mission trip. Um, I, I had not traveled much. I think this was my first time ever being on a commercial airliner and I'd never been in a different country. And so our first morning there, we were in the city of Krakow. We had stayed at a hotel uh, the, the night before and they had a continental breakfast. And so I'm like, I'm gonna play it safe. You know, I'm not gonna eat anything weird, some like weird sausage thing for breakfast, you know. I'm gonna... So I went for the cereal option, the safe option, right? And so I get cornflakes or something like that. And then I'm looking around and on this table, there were two pitchers, one that said hot milk and one that said cold milk. And so like the American that I am, I went for the cold milk, poured it all over my cereal, sat down, took a big old bite, and it was warm. Now, I don't know if that's because uh, Poland has a very different understanding of what the word cold means, or if it was because it was one of their hottest summers on record, uh, and the, it had just sat out too long, but all I know is it was nasty. Um, now, as I remember, I don't think I spit it out or threw it up all over the table, but that's what I wanted to do. And so with that in mind, what Jesus, I believe, is saying here is this, that cold water has a purpose and is wonderful, and hot water has a purpose and is wonderful, but lukewarm water is pointless, it's ineffective, and it's even disgusting. One commentator in talking about this, he wrote this, he said, the church in Laodicea was neither providing refreshment for the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective and thus distasteful to its Lord. Now this raises the obvious question then, what, why were they ineffective? Why were they disgusting to Jesus? Well, let's keep reading, look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, what made the church in Laodicea lukewarm and therefore repulsive to Jesus is that they were totally self-sufficient and independent from him. And what made it worse is that they, were, they didn't even realize that. They were unaware. They were self-deceived. But not only that, just like how Jesus went after their water source and used that as a word picture to rebuke them, here in verse 17, he does the same thing, but this time he picks on things that they were actually proud of. I mean, I just told you earlier that Laodicea was primarily known for three things, banking and financial prosperity, fashion and clothing, and a famous medical school that specialized in eye care with this, this eye salve that they were known for. And yet Jesus just told them, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. And talking about this, one writer said this, he said, it's interesting that these words of condemnation from the Lord take those things of which the Laodiceans are most proud of and turn them upside down. The wealthy and powerful banking center of Asia is in reality wretched, pitiable, and poor in its faith. The city famous for its fine fabrics and expensive clothing is really morally naked before the Lord. 
And the place that's known far and wide for its healing eye salve is in reality spiritually blind. You see, what happened is that instead of the church affecting and impacting the city and its culture, the city affected and even shaped the culture of the church. I mean, earlier I talked about how the city was destroyed by an earthquake, but that they refused to accept help from Rome and instead uh, they, they, they did it themselves. And that mindset and that attitude of independence and self-sufficiency seems to have uh, been a pretty strong part of their culture and their identity as a people. And unfortunately, it looks like the church seems to have taken on that culture and that identity as well, and they have applied it to their relationship with Christ. And one of the things that's so striking about this particular letter compared to the other ones that we have looked at so far is that this is the only church that Jesus has nothing good to say about. I mean, even Sardis, which also got lit up by Jesus, as we saw a couple weeks ago, even with them, Jesus acknowledges that there is a small remnant of believers who have remained faithful. But here with Laodicea, no such uh, commendation or praise is offered. In other words, it would appear that the entire church was compromised in this area to some degree or another. And one of the things that I was wrestling with this week as I was studying this and as I was thinking about Laodicea and, and thinking about what Jesus rebukes them for, I mean, clearly, as we've seen with some of the other churches, they were involved in all kinds of things, things like sexual immorality and other kinds of sin and idolatry and compromise. And yet, even with that, Laodicea is the only church that Jesus says makes him sick and makes him want to throw up. And I think the reason for that is because at the end of the day, self-sufficiency is pride. What it's doing is it's telling God, God, thanks, but no thanks. It's saying, God, I don't really need you anymore. I'm, I'm doing it pretty good on my own. And whether we want to admit it or not, material prosperity and wealth and comfort, they make this temptation only worse. And I know that all throughout this series, we have talked about spiritual warfare and how Satan has worked hard to infiltrate and disrupt these churches. And even though he's not explicitly mentioned here in the text, there is no doubt in my mind that he is at work here in the church of Laodicea. I mean, pride and self-sufficiency and independence from God are exactly what led to Satan's downfall and rebellion, right? Like this is his bread and butter. And unfortunately, I think many of us, we can have a pretty sanitized view of this type of sin. And so because of that, we don't realize just how ugly and deadly it is. I mean, we are much more quickly to look at sexual immorality and condemn it or to call it out. But when it comes to pride or self-sufficiency, we are tempted to downplay it or to completely ignore it. And yet, according to Jesus, pride and self-sufficiency make him sick. I think the reason that it makes him sick is for one, it's just so not true to reality, right? I mean, like after all, he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And because of that, without him, we would be nothing and we would have nothing. I mean, every time you and I take a breath, we are reminded of just how dependent on him we are. But not only that, I think the other reason it makes him sick is because he realizes just how dangerous pride, uh, just how dangerous and deadly it is. 
You see, when you and I, when we look to ourselves, instead of looking to God, we begin to lose track of reality real quick. And when we do that, when we stop listening to God and looking to Him, it won't be long before we end up hurt. You know, this week I I ran across an article which um, talked about JFK Jr.'s plane crash. Now, I remember when it happened, it was 1999, I think it was like, you know, in eighth grade or ninth grade, something like that. Um, And I, I remember just how much of a tragedy it was, but I didn't really know the details of the flight. But basically what happened was that Kennedy, um, his, his, his wife and his sister-in-law took off at about 8.30 at night from uh, New Jersey, an airport in New Jersey, and they were trying to fly to Martha's Vineyard uh, in Massachusetts. And at some point during the flight, Kennedy flew into this really dense haze, that, and, and actually at this point he was out over some open waters, he was out over the Atlantic Ocean. And according to some flight experts, they believe that Kennedy made quite a few mistakes that night. The first mistake he made was that he, uh, it's very common to get a a weather briefing before you take off flying, but for whatever reason, this night he decided not to to do that, to not read the weather briefing. And if he had, he would have known that the conditions were not great for flying. The other mistake he made is that he didn't have a ton of experience. He was very much still in the midst of, of taking lessons. And I think he had something like only like 300 hours under his belt at this point. And in fact, his flight instructor offered to go with him on the, on the flight, but he said he wanted to do it alone. And then the other factor, uh, the thing that most certainly led to him crashing was that he was not IFR qualified, which means that he was not qualified to uh, fly by the instrument panel alone. And so instead, he could only fly by visually looking out the windows of the plane in order to be able to see and to recognize the horizon and other visual landmarks. And yet in that, when you only know how to fly in that way, one of the things that can happen that's very dangerous is this thing called spatial disorientation. And this is where the pilot loses their ability to determine where they are at and what direction they are headed. And really what happens is that in your body, it creates a kind of vertigo and your body actually starts to give you wrong information. And so you think that you're flying straight and level when actually at some point you had turned and you were plummeting towards the ground. And so most likely what happened is that Kennedy was, was literally going along and at some point he started to experience this, this vertigo sensation and his mind and his body were telling him one thing, but in reality he was headed for disaster. In fact, according to the investigation, the plane hit the water nose down at about 300 miles an hour. And all three of them, all three passengers died from the impact. And again, what a tragedy, what an unfortunate situation. But if Kennedy would have been fully trained on flying by the instrument panel alone, if he would have known to just rely on not what his body was telling him, but what the instrument panel told him was reality, then he could have, uh, most likely he would still be alive today. And I would argue that in the same way, when you and I, when we stop depending on Jesus and we stop looking to him for direction and guidance and truth, and instead we begin to look inward and trust ourselves and we rely on our own resources, when we do that, it won't be long before we end up hurt. And so because Jesus knows that, because he knows the dangers of us relying on ourselves, he comes to us and he rebukes us and he gives us a reality check. And so that's what we see Jesus doing here in these verses 
to the church in Laodicea, but that's not all that he does. Let's keep going to the next point in our outline, and that is the recommendation. Look again at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Okay, so when Jesus rebukes the Laodiceans, he tells them again that they are poor, blind, and naked because of their pride and their self-sufficiency. And so now what does he do? He recommends and he counsels them to come back to him in order to find true wealth and true riches, which can only be found in Christ. And to receive from him white garments to cover their nakedness and their shame, which is, you know, which is so interesting because they were a city that was known for black garments and black, uh, you know, black clothing. And yet Jesus says, you need white garments to cover your nakedness and shame. In other words, Jesus is calling them back to himself. He's saying, look, guys, you have wandered. You have drifted away from me. You have looked to yourself and to your own wealth and your own resources for security and comfort. But you are deceived. You are in error. And you are deceived because those things can only be found in me. Right? Like, remember, I, I just was thinking about this this morning. Remember Jesus' words in John 15. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Laodiceans had forgotten that. In verse 19, Jesus even gives them the reason behind why he's rebuking them. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And so again, what we see Jesus doing here in this rebuke and in this discipline is that it's coming from a place and a posture of love and concern for them. Like I said earlier, Jesus isn't some Simon Cow figure who rebukes people because he's a jerk. No, he rebukes and he disciplines us for our good. And those rebukes and those disciplines are given in order to protect us and to help realign us with reality. I mean, this verse, this truth right here must be so important for us to understand. And the reason I say that is because this is the third time that it is mentioned in the Bible. We see it first mentioned in Proverbs 3, but then it's quoted again in Hebrews chapter 12. And so again, the Lord must really want you and I to know that this is a major aspect of his love, that he's willing to correct and discipline us when we are wrong. And so because of that, what are we to do with this? What are we supposed to do when Jesus rebukes and reproves us? Well, fortunately, at the end of verse 19, he tells us, he says, be zealous and repent. So what does it mean to repent? Well, repentance in the Bible is always an act or a decision to change or to turn. And as it relates to God, repentance is a change of direction. It's a turning back towards him. It's both an acknowledgement that you were wrong, but it's more than that. It's a step of faith where you say, God, I'm coming home. God, I want to do things your way, not my way. And really in the Bible, we get so many wonderful pictures and illustrations of, of what repentance looks like. Um, the most famous of which is probably the prodigal son, right? He's in the pig slop. He it comes to his senses. He acknowledges that he's wrong and he returns home. 
and he is received by the Father. But, but I actually think here Jesus gives us another really beautiful word picture of repentance. Look at verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. You see, many people throughout the years have quoted and have used this verse as, as an evangelistic verse, but actually in the context, Jesus is talking to a group of believers, right? Like he's talking to a church and he is calling them to repent and to return to him, to let him back in. You see, the Laodiceans were so self-sufficient and confident in their own abilities and in their own resources that they actually somehow how had kicked Jesus out of his church. And here he is now saying, look, guys, I'm knocking on the door. And if you open up and if you repent and turn back to me, I will come back in. I mean, did you know that it's actually possible to quote unquote do church but for Jesus to not be present or involved. What I mean is that it's possible for you and I to sing songs and to preach sermons and to feed the poor and to do all of the stuff, but to do so without the presence of Jesus there. And look, the reality is, is that in the American church, it's, we're really good at this. And honestly, it's easy to fall into when you have money and resources to work with. I mean, we can almost turn church into a kind of formula and even make it look externally successful. But when Jesus looks at it, when he evaluates what's going on, he's disgusted. And he's disgusted because his church has forgotten him. And instead of following him and looking to him and, and his guidance and to him taking the lead, they've started doing their own thing. And again, this, this kind of thing is just so easy to do here in America without realizing it or without even trying to do it intentionally. In fact, a few years ago, uh, we sort of realized that even us here at Lemworth, we had kind of fallen into this a little bit. And again, what happened was about four or five years ago, there was a, a group of us pastors and leaders and we were meeting and we were sitting around a table one night. And at this time in the life of our church, we had begun to realize just how much we had ignored the Holy Spirit and how we had misunderstood his work and his role in the life of our church. And so at this particular meeting, Pastor Chris looked at us and, and he asked, he said, guys, are we primarily a pragmatic church or are we a spirit-led church? And as we went around that room and each of us answered that question, it became evident very quickly that we had become a pragmatic church. In other words, we had fallen into the trap of self-sufficiency, of doing things that worked, things that produced results, things that made sense on paper. Things that people would look at and they would say, yeah, I, I like that, that makes sense, that seems to be the right thing. Now don't get me wrong, pragmatism can be good and is obviously helpful at times. But guys, we are not the Rotary Club, we are not the Lions Club. We are the church. And the church is supposed to be led by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that is because, look, the reality is sometimes Jesus in leading his church, he will lead us to do things and to make decisions that on paper don't make sense and are not pragmatic at all. And yet, if you and I, if we're not looking to Jesus, if we're not waiting on him and looking for him to take the lead and listening to his voice, if we're not doing that, we will miss that every time. 
And if we do that enough, eventually one day we'll wake up and we'll realize that Jesus's presence is nowhere to be found. But the good news, the hope in all of this is this, that Jesus is always outside knocking, waiting for us to let him back in. And so this is not hopeless, but we do have to repent and we have to turn back to him. And, and as a church, as Limworth, I, I think that there are probably still some ways that we are still overly self-reliant or self-sufficient. But, but I know that our, our, our heart's desire as leaders and as pastors is for us to be a Jesus-led, Spirit-led church. And I think that we've tried to repent of this and we're seeking to correct it. We're seeking to create more space, even little things like before we uh, have a meeting, just waiting in the Lord's presence and just inviting him, say, Lord, speak. We need your help. We need your wisdom. We don't want to rely on man's wisdom. We want to have your wisdom. And so, Lord, would you come? Would you help us? And again, I'm sure there's ways we need to grow in this, but I think that we've, we've turned the ship in the right direction. And I don't know about you, but when, I, when we've gathered the last several years, when we're together, I, I feel the Lord's presence in this room. I know that he's here with us, which actually brings us to the last point in our outline, and that is this, the reward. Look, intimacy with Jesus is the reward. Look again at what it says there in verse 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Sharing a meal with someone in the ancient world was very much an act and an expression of intimacy and fellowship. That's why right before Jesus died, he had one last meal with his disciples. And not only that, after he rose from the dead, there are multiple times uh, where he is eating a meal with the disciples. And so when you and I, when we turn from self-sufficiency and self-reliance and we turn back towards Christ and we renew and restore that closeness and that intimacy with him, that's what happens. We renew that intimacy with him when we turn back towards him, when we let him in. And again, as I said just a minute ago, at the end of the day, that is the point of it all. You know, this last year or so, God has really captured my heart with the life and the story of Moses. And there's so many aspects of his life and story that have touched and inspired me, but there's this one section in Exodus 33, which is right after the people of Israel have, Moses had gone up to the mountain in Exodus 32, and while he's up there, they create the golden calf and they begin to commit idolatry. And so Moses comes down and obviously he's mad, God's mad, and, and there's this moment where it's kind of like, what are we gonna do now? And, and, Mo, and God finally is like, all right, Moses, I want you to lead the people from Mount Sinai and to go. And Moses is like, God, you keep telling me to lead this people, to take them up, to take them to the promised land, but you're not telling me who will go with me. He's like, I, I'm, he's basically like, God, I'm not moving until you tell me who's going with me. And God says in that passage, my presence will go with you. And Moses is like, okay, good God, because look, if your presence doesn't go with us, I'm not going anywhere. Right, like I'm, I'm not leaving Mount Sinai. And God says, okay. And then right after that, Moses is like, all right, show me your glory. And that's where you get that in chapter 34, that amazing passage where God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and his glory passes in front of him. And really all through those chapters, kind of 33, 34, you get these amazing pictures of the intimacy between Moses and Yahweh. I mean, in those passages, that's where you get the, that verse that talks about uh, Moses used to speak to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. 
You also get that section where Moses goes into the tent of meeting and, and, and spends time in God's presence and he comes out and his face is glowing so much that he actually has to start wearing a veil so that he doesn't blind the people of Israel. But then if you keep reading on from there, what happens is that eventually Mo Moses has this one moment of anger where he really loses his cool and he disobeys God. And the consequence of that that God gives him is that Moses is told he's not allowed to go into the promised land. And I don't know about you, but I've always been bugged and troubled by that. But just recently on my sabbatical, I was reading this book for leaders, which is all about the life of Moses and the lessons that leaders can learn from it. And at the end of the book, the author, Ruth Haley Barden, she was talking about this very thing that I'm talking about. She saw, she's like, you know, it just seems so harsh that, that Moses had to miss out on the promised land and that God even, you know, kind of cruelly took him up on a mountain so that he could see it. And then was like, but you can't go in and now I'm gonna kill you. And, and he takes him. But the thing that's interesting, when you actually look at the passage and you read it, Moses doesn't seem to mind, right? Like you don't see him bar like, please God, please let me go in, I beg you. You don't get any of that. And so on this very point, here's what Barton says. She says, finally, there would be nothing standing. She, she's sort of picturing this moment of Moses up on the mountain and he's looking at the promised land and he knows he's about to go, he's about to, to die. And so she says, finally, there would be nothing standing between him and the lover of his soul. This is what I've come to see most clearly in the life of Moses. For Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. Next to that, everything else had paled in significance. Clearly, something had happened to Moses. He was so changed by the journey that he was completely at peace with himself and with God. Nothing of this world had any hold on him at all. By this time, Moses and God were like an old married couple who had loved and fought for so long that they had reached a deep level of understanding. They had been through so much together that now it was enough to just sit and rock on the front porch of life, each one content just to know that the other is there. That was all it took to make life good. And I don't know about you, but I just love that image and that language of like, you know, as we think about this life, right? Like life's hard, okay? And we, we know that like eternity with Jesus is the promised land. But when you think about, you know, it's not going to be the streets of gold. It's not going to be all the things that we think of that make that the promised land. It's going to be being in the presence of Jesus. Again, all of the stuff that we do here as a church, all of the activity, if we do it, but Jesus's presence is not with us, then we have missed the point. See, God's not just looking for workers who he can bark out orders to, to do whatever he wants, but he is looking for friends who will do it with him. In fact, if we keep on reading, we see that he's such a generous friend. Look again at verse 21. This, this may be one of the craziest verses in all the Bible. Look closely what he says. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, practically, I don't know all of what that means, but what that just said is that Jesus Christ is going to scoot over and he's gonna let you and I sit on his throne with him. How crazy is that, like? Like, like what compels a king to share his throne with someone? This is how much Jesus values our friendship and our relationship with him. He doesn't wanna rule and reign on his own, he wants to do it with us to the point that he actually will scoot over and allow us to sit on his throne with him if you and I remain 
faithful. I think this is what Paul means in Romans 8 when he talks about us being co-heirs with Christ. Or in Ephesians where he talks about us being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I mean, intimacy and friendship with Jesus and ruling and reigning with him, those are the rewards for those who look to and who depend on Jesus instead of themselves. And so real quick, just to close here, how how do you and I know if we are acting like the Laodiceans and are being self-reliant and self-sufficient? Well, one question I would ask you is this, can you explain your life apart from the grace and the spirit of God? In other words, if, if you were to describe for someone the way that your life looks, things like the decisions that you have made, how you spend your money, your family choices, your career choices, if you were to explain that and in the process of telling someone, if every single aspect of it makes sense and is practical and pragmatic, then I would say that perhaps there's a good chance you are living a self-sufficient life that you are living a life that is maybe independent from the Spirit of God, right? Because there's just gonna be these moments. If you're you're following Jesus, if he's he's leading and guiding your life, you're gonna have these moments. It won't be all of the time, but you'll have a moment where on paper, it doesn't make sense. He's gonna ask you to take a risk that on paper doesn't make sense, but that's what it means to follow him, right? Like we walk by faith, not by sight. And so as you evaluate your life, if everything about it is just neat and clean and practical and pragmatic and and all of that, I I don't know, you have to do that evaluation, but I would just say maybe there's a chance if you can explain your life apart from the spirit of God and the grace of God, that perhaps you've fallen into this. Another question I would ask that I think can expose this is for you and I to look at and to evaluate our prayer life. I mean, the bottom line is, is if you and I are not praying, we are living an independent life from Jesus. I mean, prayer is the main way you and I express our need and our dependence upon him. And therefore, it's not surprising that prayer is also the main way that we experience fellowship and intimacy with him. You see, those two things are linked. As we express dependence uh, upon God, we experience intimacy and closeness and fellowship with him. And I know that for some of us in here, this is like, you know, especially when it's like anytime a pastor's like, How's your prayer life, right? Like that's, even for the pastor, they're like, well, don't ask me that question, you know? Right, like this is convicting. But it's not hopeless. You and I, like the Laodiceans, that opportunity, Jesus is always knocking. He's always there and we can open that door anytime and say, Jesus, I repent. I wanna turn back towards you. I wanna depend on you. I wanna live a life that is in union and fellowship with you. And we can do that. And so as we turn now to the Lord's table, there's one thing that's uh, interesting about this passage is that a lot of commentators have pointed out that there seems to be a connection here between verse 20, which talks about us opening the door to Jesus and us coming, him coming in to dine with us. And there seems to be a connection between that and the Lord's Supper, right? Like the Lord's Supper is a practical way that you and I get to experience Christ's presence and and in a sense, dine with him. And so as we prepare to take the elements this morning, I just want to encourage you to take a minute here and to just do a little heart check, right? Like Nick kind of had us do one earlier. I'm gonna have us do another one. Just take a moment, do a little heart check and, 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 and ask the spirit, say, spirit, have I drifted in this area? Have I moved into a place of self-sufficiency and pride? 
And if you have, just acknowledge that to the Lord and repent and say, God, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live a life that's independent from you. I don't want to make decisions and choices without being led by your spirit. And if you do that, I, I believe the Lord will meet you in that place. Not only will he forgive that, which he's, he has forgiven that, but he'll renew that intimacy and that closeness with you. And so as we, uh, they're gonna, the band's gonna play a song here. And during this next song, you don't need to feel like you need to rush into it. You can, again, just take a moment and spend some time with the Lord and to think about this. But then when you feel ready, you can go ahead and take the elements on your own. i 
I, the word loneliness popped into my mind and I was just, you know, just sitting here just trying to process the Lord. Lord, is there something you want to, to do or to say in regards to that? And um, you know, the thing about just today's message and just think about what we were just singing, I just wonder if maybe there are some of us in here who are, this, you know, the last, just think the last two years or so, they're you're feeling a deep sense of loneliness and, and maybe it's in relation to other people and friends and family or maybe perhaps it's, it's a loneliness you're experiencing with the Lord. Maybe you feel like, God, I just, I, I, I want that intimacy. I want that closeness. I want that friendship. But Lord, I just feel like you've left me. I feel like you've abandoned me to do life on my own. And, and I just think maybe the Lord wants to surprise you today and he just wants you to admit that that that's what you're feeling and express lord lord i am desperate for you lord i don't want to do this life without you like like i was saying earlier with moses like lord if your presence doesn't go with us i'm not going anywhere so maybe you're in that place today and i just we're, we're going to close now but i would just invite you to uh, after the message to work your way down here and to to share that with someone from our prayer team and just say i I just feel lonely and I feel like I would love to have that intimacy and that closeness with Jesus again. And so just to challenge you, invite you to do that. Um, I'm gonna give a benediction here in a moment, but just wanna remind you, um, hopefully you saw the text. We did have to cancel with Eric Chabot. Uh, his, unfortunately, he had a family member pass away, but we are gonna schedule it for this Wednesday. And so please be here Wednesday night. Uh, we'll do the second part in our apologetics training that we have scheduled. And um, I, you know, life groups, you'll, you'll have to just figure out how to do that. Um, like, I think I have life group on Thursday. I think we're gonna still do it. Um, so you, you, that'll be your decision to make, but we'd still love for as many of you that can, please try to attend on Wednesday night. Um, let me close with a benediction here. It's 2 Peter 3.18. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen.